Blog Talk Radio. And, and 
Keith is still not feeling comfortable about it, and I'm sure you're not. I mean, what, what, is your, what was your general thought when you saw this 30 come down? Well, uh, when Landon Donovan was left off the team, my, my first thought was just, well, how in the heck did that happen? And the more I kind of looked into it and talked with uh, folks who were a little bit more on the inside than I was, and uh, even hearing the tone of Stephen Goff's articles uh, in the Washington Post and um, then seeing the quote from Jonathan Klinsman uh, laughing at Landon's getting cut. I mean, there was something going on there behind the scenes that maybe would explain it a whole lot better than um, just the, the the supposed argument by Jurgen Klinsmann that Landon Donovan wasn't good enough to be on this team, which on face value seemed pretty absurd. And then when you heard about how Landon performed during camp and uh, during the beat test, he was one of the final guys, you know, still standing and, you know, he looked to be in great shape and really motivated. And, um, you know, it just the more and more you heard about it. And then, you know, Jurgen making Landon, you know, Landon Donovan could only be a, a forward or a striker. You know, he, he wasn't going to play wing or, uh, you know, it just to me was political. And it took me back and it took others back to last year where that article came out. Uh, through Brian Strauss, where there was some internal criticism from people that were on the Nash players on the national team of Jurgen Klinsmann. And um, you kind of look at what happened after that article came out. And one of the two guys, or two of the three guys that immediately got cut from the team after that article were Boca Negra and, uh, and Hercules Gomez. And just the rumor started going out that, hey, you know, those guys were two of the guys that may have said something more than they probably should have in that article. And that, you know, one thing that Jurgen Klinsmann um, puts above all else is loyalty and being on the same page that he's on. And betrayal is certainly, in any fashion, is just something that is unacceptable to him. Now, it's easy to cut Boca Negra, although there were some groans from people when he was cut and never invited back ever again. Um, it's easier to cut guys like Hercules Gomez and uh, Boca Negra out of the picture and not have to worry about a flood of comments coming in and, and controversy. But he couldn't quite um, cut Landon Donovan out of the, the picture at that point. It just would have been uh, politically would have been too difficult. So he strung us all along, I think, for a while. And um, when he saw an opportunity to make it at least somehow uh, technically about Landon's play, his commitment, his fitness, whatever you want to call it, then uh, he made the politically smart move and uh, cut Landon before the uh, 23 and made it about his play rather than about what it really was in my book was politics. And really, you know, in many ways, Landon Donovan has himself to blame for that as well because you have to be careful about what you say. You want to stay on the same page as your coach as much as possible, but I don't think that that's what happened. And I think uh, time will tell. 
five years from now, ten years from now, when there's a tell-all book, we're going to find out that this move was not about the fact that Landon Donovan is a less effective left midfielder or right midfielder than Brad Davis or Grand Zussi or any of the other guys, that, some of the other guys that made the team. It was really about the fact that um, politics came, was involved, personal feelings. Otherwise, it's really hard to explain uh, Jonathan Klinsman's tweet, which to me told a bigger story than people really talked about, which was sometime at the Klinsman dinner table, um, there was a discussion about Landon Donovan, and uh, it wasn't a very nice discussion. And uh, the, the sort of betrayal uh, became very clear to all at the dinner table, which is why that tweet would have made sense if we knew the whole story. Um, so that's kind of my take on it. And, and it's not to say that it's all Jurgen Klinsmann's fault. Obviously, if you're Landon Donovan, you not only have to play well, but you have to do your best at least to stay on the pa- same page as uh, with the with the leadership with, with Jurgen Klinsmann and his team. And I think that's where that disconnect happened, and that's why we got the result that we did. No, I mean, we're we're fortunate that we can look back at this now and say, well, we're we're going into a group of deaths. But I I have read that a lot about a bunch of bunch of groups in the World Cup that everything is a that a lot of groups are groups of deaths. Is this one? If is this one of those World Cups that is very very even? Well, uh, I think, you know, if you looked at it, technically there are other groups at least using um, the average team rank uh, that are harder. Um, Group D, you know, with Uruguay, England, Italy, and Costa Rica, their average team rank is 13. Not that you 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 can live or die by the rankings, but uh, Group D is is technically more difficult than our group, Group G. But Group B has uh, Spain, Chile, uh, Netherlands and Australia, and I think their average rank is somewhere around 15. And then we're our group G is is more like in the 16.5 rank, so that puts us as the third, technically the third hardest group. Now the discussion could be the way the FIFA system works um, when we create these groups, and some might say that it's pretty darn flawed when Group H, um, all the way at the bottom there with Belgium, Russia, and South Korea and Algeria. You know, the average rank of the teams are 32. So that's a long ways from the average ranking of your group being 16, 15, or 13. So, you know, what you could point out there is that perhaps the system that FIFA has set up um, to create the groups is flawed, and that might be the issue more than anything else. I I don't think it's even, and I think it's the way the groups are put together is obviously going to affect um, what happens in this World Cup. No, I mean, we are seeing... uh... I don't know if you got. I don't know if you got, had the opportunity to listen to ESPN. They were doing a ESPN FC this afternoon, and Gilberto Silva already fired off the first cannon of controversy. He he already said that Spain is getting out of the group, uh, out of their group. Well, I mean, is you mean they're gonna they're going to. Um, they're going to make it into the. They're going to make it out of the group and into the. the you know the the, the next round. Uh, is that what you're saying? Or no, they're not. They're not making. No, 
They're not making it out. They're not making it out of the group at all. I'm not sure how you justify that. I mean, uh, it's it's uh, seems a little crazy of a prediction. I mean, Netherlands are this horribly inconsistent team that can either play great or then show up and and just you know not do anything. I think certainly Chile is going to put up a good fight, but I don't I don't see how you can get Spain uh, not coming out of this group. I mean, we can just toss Australia off to the side. Really, it comes down between Spain, Chile, and the Netherlands. And I just think Spain's just a more consistent team. Listen, it wouldn't shock me if the Netherlands and Chile went through and Spain didn't. But I just think that, you know, um, I just think that's probably Spain's in and it's really between Chile and, and the Netherlands. That's just my my feeling there. But uh, obviously Australia got seriously reamed in that group. They have no shot at all in my book. Now, I know a lot of the talk has been around, and I've I've listened to this on the football show and various other places, that Chile is a better team than we are letting on. But we see this leading up to, I mean, we've heard about Belgium for three years, that this is Belgium's era, They're, they've got all this great talent. Now we're hearing of Chile, of are there people out there that are looking at some of these teams and say, making too much out of them, like 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 Chile's group? Because yeah. because this is in South America, they're used to playing these South American teams. That it would be easy for it would be easy for them to beat beat the Netherlands because we don't know if Van Gaal is continuing with them and Man United, or if they're going to be or if Netherlands is going to get out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to say. I would say, you know, typically uh, the European teams don't play as well uh, when the World Cup is held in South America. I mean, but you can't really necessarily use that trend uh, as, as a trend that's going to necessarily um, continue in this World Cup. I mean, it could be that, you know, the European teams will just do just fine to, the players are in better shape than they've ever been, so travel won't have as much effect on them. But, you know, it helps if you're Chile to be uh, have the World Cup in South America. You're going to have a lot of your fans there supporting you. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if it, people are – I don't know if it's a, it's a huge deal, but uh, I think Chile has the advantage over the Netherlands on this one. But, uh, you know, that's why they say the ball is round. <laughs> we'll see what happens out there. And, again, Netherlands is just they're, just, they're one of those teams. I mean, they can show up and just be great, or they can just have one of those games, those off games that they occasionally have where, you know, things just don't go their way. Now, I mean, what, what do we, I mean, because a lot of the, a lot of the talk has been, there are really about really four really great teams that, in the, in this one, you've got you've got the Argentinas, you've got the Brazils, you've got the Spain, you've got the Germany. Now, fortunately, the United States has got to play against Germany, and we have their we have one of their legends. I mean, is it is this a time for Germany to be to be big? I mean, are are we gonna are we gonna see them truly be be awesome, or or out of Europe? You know, Germany is just one of those, I mean, they're just typically one of those solid-as-a-rock teams during the World Cup. I mean, you could say, well, they'll probably make it to the semifinals and lose like they sometimes do. 
Um, or this could be the year or the first year European team actually, you know, wins a World Cup in South America. It's, it's anything is possible, but there's no doubt that Germany is uh, a solid team. They're, they're typically solid, and I, I certainly wouldn't bet against them. Um, but outside of the big four that you just mentioned, um, you know, I think the, if Brazil wins it, it'll be really because it's in their home court. Because I feel like, you know, they, they haven't played, uh, always played their best soccer either. But uh, it certainly helps that it's going to be right there in, in their home country. Yeah, that whole dynamic between, um, that whole dynamic that says that European teams just don't perform well in South America, again, it's, it's true so far. Um, and we'll see if a team like Germany or Spain uh, can, can change that. But I really think your favorites are Argentina and, and Brazil. I think you have to stick with those two um, if you look at the numbers and then you look where they're playing and who's going to be used to that uh, that sort of uh, surrounding uh, and that, that atmosphere is going to really help both of those teams, I'm sure. You know how important it is to have the home, home court. I mean, can you see the United States doing even remotely as well as they did in 94 if it wasn't in the United States? I, I really don't see no. that happening. So, yeah, home court, you cannot, you cannot say enough about playing, you know, playing in your own your own stadium in front of your own fans. Big stuff. Now, I mean, one of the one of the surprising things as you have said, as you have said it cut, coming into this is that um Holland Holland is very erratic. I and mean, they're they're one of the great teams that's never won the World Cup. Mm-hmm. The problem with them not winning the World Cup is that we're so infatuated with the Dutch with how they play, that we grab up their players so quickly and they're not allowed to develop. I mean, you, you see you see Chelsea that has, what, 80 youth team players and they're all, they're all, playing, they're all playing at lower division teams. I mean, have, has the footballing world failed the Netherlands? Yeah, I mean, somewhat. I mean, they've kind of failed themselves in a way. Um, there was a time when Ajax was, you know – Year after year, one of the best teams in Europe, you know, competing for um, the Champions League spot, uh, top spot. But those days are kind of over, of course, because of the way things have developed in Europe as far as the big the big leagues go. And those big leagues, we all know who they are, you know. I mean, it's, it's England, it's Spain, it's Germany, it's Italy. Those are your big four, and... Everything after that just kind of takes a back seat. So, yeah, I mean, the vaunted uh, domestic uh, setup, even with a team like Ajax, um, just isn't what it used to be because they're a selling team now. Even Ajax is a selling team. But you still have good players that come out of of Holland that are developed and they go on and play in the, the big four leagues. So, yeah, has it hurt them a little to not be one of the powerhouses anymore? Sure. I mean, it has. Uh, but then again, on the other side, has it really helped England to be one of the powerhouses? Has that helped their World Cup team? It hasn't. For them, it's kind of the opposite effect. But, no, I I think it's actually worse for England than it is for, for the Dutch. I think Dutch soccer is still somewhat 
uh, healthy, still somewhat flourishing because they have to have that great youth system at Aze and Ajax so they can sell those great players. Maybe sometimes they sell them too quickly. Maybe they're sold too young. Uh, but still, if you're a youngster and you're you're leaving Ajax to go play at Chelsea or Man United or wherever you go, you're, it's not like you're you know downgrading in in youth development system. You're you know it, it could be maybe you don't get the same look as you would uh, otherwise. But I think yeah, I don't know. I I don't think that um, certainly the domestic league has taken a hit in Holland, um, and uh, but for the most part, I think player development hasn't suffered that much because of um because they're they are a selling league. Um and that means you have to develop those those youth players if you're Ajax and Aze so you can sell them off to well, didn't work so well uh selling off Josie uh for Josie at Sunderland, but but you get the general idea. Yeah, I, I what I was bringing up is Rude Hewlett who is down at um being sports right now was was saying that that's the main reason why he is saying because he, he he figures that with all the top coaches and players that have come through in the last thirty years, you could have you could have figured one of the off years they could have at least nicked a title along the way because Brazil has it. I mean, yeah. Brazil's got the most. Yeah, you would think. Well, they, you, think you would think. I was just going to say. Well, Rue might say that, and one of the things that those, you know. Teams in the past um, at Ajax, a lot, you know, the, the, the national team was made up in the old days in, in, in Holland and uh, Netherlands of a lot of players who've been playing with each other all season at Ajax. And I think the the uh, uh, the chemistry was better then because these are players that already know each other and, and play with each other, kind of like the German national team throughout the years has had a great portion of the team is from Bayern Munich and um, there's something to be said about that chemistry that that'll help but you know even back then the Dutch failed to win a World Cup so I you know I don't know if Gullit's comments are 100% rational honestly now I mean obviously the the one group that we're all worried about is is our group and there, there are three very good teams in there and there, there is what's coming out online right now, and um, Eric Krakauer, if you, if anybody else is following him, is is saying that me, Cristiano's injury might be a little bit more serious than we think, so that might put some fear into Portugal, who haven't really been playing massively well, if if you can, if you could say that. I mean, that might be a, it might be a game where this United States team can go in and get a point or two. Now, what do we think yeah. of Portugal? I mean, what do we think of Portugal on a whole? Well, Portugal without Cristiano Ronaldo is still a really decent team. Uh, but I think the fact is we're, Ronaldo's going to play, and with him they're a much better team. There's no doubt about it. They become, you know, I think one of the better teams in the world. However, we saw during their whole qualifying campaign they barely squeaked by. I mean, they played some real stinkers, too. Uh, and I guess our hope is, and you're seeing this with the U.S., is say we've been playing Fabian Johnson at right back uh, because, A, he's one of the fastest players on our team, um, and we're going to need somebody out there on our right because you know where Ronaldo likes to roam, on the left, on his left, and uh, that's why we're seeing Fabian Johnson um, you know, playing in the back position. 
right back spot. And um, he's there for one reason, and his reason is, uh, is just to keep an eye on Cristiano Ronaldo for that particular match. And, um, no, I think Portugal is a fabulous team. I, I don't think that uh, – I think we've got a shot at coming away with a tie, and if it's anything like 2002, we can really shock them and come out, you know, with a win. Um, and that would, of course, be the best-case scenario, uh, depending on what happens with Ghana in game one, which is really the key to the World Cup, starting the World Cup for us. Start off no. on a good foot there. It could be, it could be bad news. Yeah, exactly. It could be bad news. Now, I mean, is this, is this the year that uh, is this the year that the team that, that the United States does get get Ghana? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of like any other any of the other years where you know we had a decent shot at it. Um, Ghana's a really high quality team. Um, I think it's just do we come out and uh, uh, offensively play the way we can, while at the same time, and this is our real challenge going into this World Cup, our back four. I mean, it, it was evident against Turkey even, and hopefully it gets better than that, because if it doesn't, we really don't have a shot against any of these three teams. I mean, that, that game could have been 4-4 the way it was played. Um, it could have been 4-2 Turkey. It could have been 3-2 Turkey the way that game was played. So our back four is still got a lot of question marks. It's got a lot of chemistry issues. Uh, it's not like the guys back there aren't, aren't good. I mean, uh, Bessler, uh, Beesler is, is a decent player. Um, Cameron, however, has been playing right back for Stoke all season. He's a very versatile guy, but is he ready to play next to, to Beesler? And, and if Gonzo has to start, is he ready to play next to him? I mean, that's there's just not these guys at the CB spot for us. There's just not been a consistent uh, pair we've had, you know, for the last couple of years playing together back there. Um, so that's going to be a real question mark for us, if they can pull it together and uh, we can get a result against Ghana, then things will be great. But that's real. That's really where the weakness lies for us, I think. And um, I think that's probably what we're all the most nervous about is that, that back four and um, – Hopefully we get that shored up or we see an improvement in our final friendly here before we head to the World Cup. Well, would you – this is going to be out This is going to be out in left field because, I, well, I can. Um, we have two very good goalkeepers here. Tim, Tim Howard is used to playing in front of a very good back four. I mean, Everton's had a good back four for years. And then you've got Brad Guzan, who's never had anything good in front of him and – Stands on his head. Do you, do you sacrifice Tim Howard for a goalkeeper that's used to having just junk in front of him? Nah, nah, I don't think. I don't even think that that's a question um, that you can seriously consider. I think Tim Howard's your guy, and God forbid he get injured for whatever reason. You have a first class backup in Brad Guzan, but I, yeah, I think Timmy Howard's your guy. I mean. Uh, honestly, he could probably even be the captain of this team. He's he's got that strong of a voice back there. Yeah, I'm not. I to be honest with you, I think the real question marks for us are going to be um, at left back um, because it Beasley didn't even get a look at the field in the last friendly, which is odd since he started the game before. And then the way Timmy Chandler played last game, if that doesn't make you nervous, I don't know what will. 
because that was really sketchy, uh, a sketchy giveaway. And there were a couple moments during that game you just wondered what Chandler was thinking. Uh, and he, he doesn't make those kind of dumb mistakes with at Nuremberg. So that's kind of the surprising thing, those kind of, you know, moments where he just seems to forget he's playing, uh, you know, a game. And, and that giveaway was just, I mean, it was really bad. And there were other times he was stuck too far in, and Turkey almost took advantage of us on the right side of the field. I mean, he's not the only guy. Yedlin went way up the field too many times and overcommitted, and we almost got caught in the back. So, yeah, I mean, that's where my worry is. Uh, I think Fabian Johnson's solid if he's the starter at right back. I'm really worried about who um, who's going to play uh, left back for us. And, I mean, who, what, what would you – if you were Jurgen? What would you do? You've got the twenty-three. You can't. You can't make any. You can't make any changes right now. What would your lineup be going into to, into the last the last warm-up game? Well, I think for this last warm-up game, you have to play what you think is going to be your starting lineup, right? I mean, you want to make sure those guys have one more opportunity to start with each other to get that chemistry going. So you know, just from um, predicting prior lineups, I'm, I'm going to probably say Fabian Johnson's going to continue to start it right back. And then you'll have uh, Beasler and Cameron in the middle. Um, I don't really know how injured Gonzo is. It just He didn't get a, you know, a sniff of the field last. Um, I, I don't know if that bodes well for him. Uh, Brooks got the look instead. So I'm not sure what's going on. I heard his injury is still nagging him a little. Um, and, of course, you know, in camp, he, he couldn't really go the first week he was um, uh, recovering. So I think those three are solid. At left back, I, I thought Beasley was your probable starter. Uh, but it looks like Clinton still wants to mess around a little with Chandler. But I think maybe Beasley will see the field for the next game as your starter. Uh, I think that's probably after Chandler's play where you got to go. And uh, because at least Beasley hasn't make any hasn't made any horrendous mental errors like that. And then you know the guy playing in front of the four, front four, a lot of people right now are arguing for Beckerman because of the way he's played. And you know I've been one of those guys that over the years has been pretty critical of Beckerman. But I mean I have to say he's he's kind of won me over. Um, I like the, his instincts back there. He seems to always be sort of in the right place, even though. It looks like he's running with bricks in his shoes, but he seems to find the right the right spot. But more than likely, Jones is going to start in front of that back, that back four in the middle, and I think we'll stick with the diamond. So you'll see uh, Zussi and Bedoya out wide, and, and then uh, Bradley at the top of that diamond. And up front, uh, I still think you see Altador and Dempsey as your as your starters. Uh, that's my guess of what Clinton's going to go for. And I really can't necessarily disagree. The only other argument you might make is maybe Davis, after that last friendly, earned himself a starting role instead of maybe, you know, Bedoya uh, or Morzusi. Um, that's the only other argument you could probably make. Um, now, I, I, I want to welcome on – I want to interrupt you real quick because I want to welcome on someone else. Eric Krakauer from Soccer League is on. Well, welcome to the show, Eric. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. I, I wanted to have you on for a couple reasons. One, because you cover Portugal, and you you could do a little bit, you could talk a little bit more about them than we can. 
and I'm obviously talking about obviously talking about the United States as we're talking about the World Cup. Um, what could we expect out of Portugal with Cristiano not being healthy right now? Well, that's I think that's the million dollar question. Uh, you know, against Greece, you saw a, a very rare change in formation um, with the Portugal setup. You know, Paulo Bento usually plays a four three three. Uh, he doesn't even really mess around with his central uh, three. You know, he plays with an inverted triangle with a guy sitting deep, usually Veloso. And I think that what you saw against Greece was an experiment because there is some real concern that Ronaldo is not going to be available either for uh, one or a couple of the group games. Uh, his injury right now is sort of an enigma. The, you know, we were all trying to figure out what was going on. He was training, but he just just jogging alongside uh, Mireles and Beto, the second-string goalkeeper. But in terms of tactics, I don't know if you're going to see many changes. I, I still, I think that after you know the failed experiments against Greece, at least in terms of movement, I think you're still going to three four, see a four-three-three. The question is, if he really is not available, who's going to fill in that slot? And I mean, who would you who would you fill in if he if he isn't available? Well, I think Nani pretty much uh, won his spot. Uh, he was one of the only players who really looked like um, uh, looked like he, he he was playing well. Looked like he knew what he was doing, what he was supposed to be doing um, tactically. Because you know, even in the four four two, tactically uh, for him as a winger, there isn't that much of a difference. And he did come into the middle, so he was very involved. So Nani will definitely be there. Uh, but possibly Varela. Varela got a start against Greece. Uh, he came up big in the Euro 2012, uh, scoring a goal against Denmark that gave Portugal the win. So this is a guy who Bento has a lot of trust in, a lot of faith in. He doesn't. He's not prone to making mistakes. So if Ronaldo doesn't go, I I, I would put my money on Varela and Nani. You're also on with Derek Ritchie of the Straight Red Card. Derek, do you have anything for Eric? I was gonna, Eric. Hey, I was gonna ask you. Um, you know, how much do the chances of the U.S. Uh, getting some sort of result against Portugal improve? Obviously, Ronaldo is an important piece of their their puzzle. Well, let's just say for a second he's not there. I mean, how much does that really improve our chances of of, of getting something out of that game? I think significantly. You know, detractors. You know, people who. There are a lot of people out there who think that Portugal is a one-man team. Uh, and to be honest with you, the, the, the performance against Green, Greece did nothing to dispel that theory uh, or that belief. So I think that if Ronaldo were not able to play against the United States, chances are that the United States has a, has a, better, uh, a better shot at getting a positive result, whether that's a, a tie or a win. But I have to say, though, given the U.S.'s performance against Turkey in the first half, the, uh, the confusion in the defense, who's marking whom, uh, whether in the diamond formation uh, Bradley comes back far enough to track uh, deep-lying midfielders who make runs into the box, if they play like that against Portugal, it doesn't matter whether or not Ronaldo is on the field, Portugal is going to have a field day. Yeah. They're going to torch us. I actually was just uh, telling Stephen that uh, before you came on. Yeah, we play like that with that kind of confusion in the back four, and especially the two CBs, who just 
none of those guys have enough chemistry or play with one another enough uh, throughout the last year uh, to really be able to count on the other guy to be in a certain spot, uh, for sure. So, like I said, I hope we see some improvement in the Nigeria game, but I just don't see this getting fixed overnight. Well, look, I, I don't know whether whether that was a tactical issue uh, that wasn't well discussed with Klinsman, uh, because things did tighten up in the second half. The second half was better. Uh, and, you know, given all the problems at the back, I thought that the U.S. looked pretty decent going forward. There was a little bit of creativity. There was a little bit of spark. Um, Altador didn't have the best performance, but he did have some opportunities. So I'm not saying that chances that that the U.S. has no chance uh, because they could create some some difficulties, and and you just never know because in in many tournaments like a World Cup, uh, psychologically, you know, the psychological factor is is, is big. Uh, how you've done against the previous teams, you know, if the United if Portugal comes uh, faces the United States after having a bad result versus the Germans, there's going to be a lot of pressure on on Portugal, and that could play. Uh, into the hands of, of the United States, who have a lot less pressure on their backs. Um, either way, I think that with Ronaldo or without Ronaldo, Portugal is definitely favored in that matchup. But I think that you know the U.S. will be uh, licking its chops if if there is no Ronaldo in the Portuguese lineup. You know, and we've seen in the last two games, uh, Bradley not really making his way back. Um, to, to help out back four and, and, and Jones or, or Beckerman, whoever it's been, you know, he's been allowed to uh, stay more aggressive and be the link up between the defense and the forwards. And I just, I just have to wonder, you know, do we really, I mean, guys like Wallace have said, you know, I don't think we can play like that at the world cup because the teams uh, that we're going to be playing in the world cup will eat us, eat, you know, eat our lunch if we play um, uh, that aggressively. And so some people are saying, you know, Bradley's got to stay back with Jones and Beckerman. We can't play that aggressive. And I just wonder, it doesn't seem like we've seen a change from Klinsman to play um, it more defensively. And we'll see, I guess, against Nigeria if Bradley continues to have that, that freedom. But, I mean, I, I wonder where you fall on that, Erica. I mean, are you one of those guys that thinks – this is just not going to, this, this particular setup just, you know, isn't going to work at the World Cup against this quality of, of opponent. Well, look, the, the, the strengths of the diamond formation is that defensively you pack the middle of the field. Uh, and that is what I think Klinsman wants to do. He wants to make it very difficult for there to be any space in the middle, in the middle of the field, uh, especially when the U.S. is on, on its back foot. I don't think tactically you'll see many changes. I think you will see more of uh, a refining of, of the game plan. Um, the, the issue is if you play the diamond formation, when you're playing as teams who are going to line up in a 4-3-3, most likely Germany will, uh, or some sort of a variation of the 4-3-3, like a 4-2-3-1, how are they going to defend uh, the wings? What you saw against Turkey was that the United States was very porous in the middle. That's going to get fixed. Right, he, that's certainly what Klinsman is addressing, and we'll see whether whether um, the practice that he's he's put in with the team since uh, the game against Turkey is going to uh, manifest itself positively uh, against Nigeria. Having said that, look, you're going to see a U.S. team that is for the most part going to play on the counter attack. 
Uh, and if that's the case, whether or not he wants to, Bradley is going to be defending um, a lot. Yeah. So it'll end up looking almost more like a, you know, a 4-2 uh, with our two midfielders there uh, as the next two, and then, you know, probably like a 1-1 on top with Altador and Dempsey. Absolutely, yep. Yeah, you'll see a lot more side-by-side play between Jones and Bradley rather than Bradley letting Jones do most of the defensive work and just kind of waiting for the ball to come to him uh, higher up the field so he can begin the counter. Uh, But I just wonder if that's going to have a negative effect on our ability to counter if uh, Bradley just becomes another defender in front of that back four with Jones. Yeah, well, that will be something to see. But, you know, with uh, Johnson on the right who, as you saw, Again, against Turkey, very good at attacking. Zuzi, his, his, his big strength is that he's able to uh, pick out players pretty well on the counter. So, look, I, I, think, that, I think you'll see some improvements uh, with the U.S. I think you will likely see that uh, against Nigeria, and let's hope that uh, they manage to get their game plan going. Yeah. No, I mean, what, what, what do you say, what, Eric? I mean, we we had all the hubbub before, and I, I opened up the show with this with Derek with with Landon being dropped. I mean, what was your whole after that shook out thought of it? Could you repeat that? Sorry. Yeah, sorry about that. Well, after now that we have kind of let the dust settle with Landon Donovan not being on the team, what was your whole thought process after seeing that happen? Well, look, uh, I'm, I, I would be lying if I didn't say I was a little bit surprised. Uh, however, there were the, some signs were there, right? We know that there, the relationship between uh, Donovan and Klinsman was not the best. Uh, I still think it was a bad decision. I know that a lot of people say, well, it's not about what you did in the past, it's about what you've done lately. But I think that when you have a guy of that caliber in the dressing room, you have a, a, a certain – it brings a certain aura um, – and without him being there, it will be very interesting to see who's going to sort of pick up uh, or, or take up his, his role in motivating. Because one of my big criticisms about Quinzen's tenure has been his choice to make Dempsey the, the, the captain. I don't think he's the kind of guy who gets everybody going. Uh, he's more of a quiet captain who works hard on the field. So I think that as a personality, Donovan will be missed. And I think uh, as a sub who can come in and ignite uh, his team, he will be missed as well. So I, w- I would have taken him, and I think that most people would probably be uh, sympathetic with my position. Yeah. I think uh, what I had mentioned as well, Stephen, that it, it, it really seemed uh, to be a, a political and personal decision. Rather, I just am not buying – uh, the rhetoric about um, the past, frankly, the past not being as important as now, and that not buying that um, Donovan wasn't, you know, uh, performing uh, at that camp. Uh, but one thing that you see in the ESPN series that you haven't seen quoted in any newspapers uh, that Klinsman says when he was interviewed during that series is he mentions the word character character being also one of the top uh, reasons he's going to make the decision on who makes it and who doesn't. And I think uh, character played a role there. I think that uh, they did not have a great relationship. I think there have been words said 
that um, uh, both to the press and in maybe in private that Klinsman uh, found out about, and I think that played a role in uh, in his assessment of Landon Donovan's character. I have to agree with you. With 10 minutes left in the game, Landon Donovan's just the guy I want on the field uh, when you need a goal with 10 minutes to go. But, uh, again, unfortunately, there's not much we're going to do about it. And I think even if uh, one of the forwards dropped out of this position, I think at this point, Clemson's already made it clear that uh, Donovan is just maybe an option depending on who gets hurt. So before it was, oh, yeah, without a doubt, if one of them go down, I'm calling Landon Donovan now. He's moved to the, well, depending on who gets hurt. So I think that relationship, as Stephen Goff put it in Washington Post, it's over. It's done. And uh, I don't think, you know, even if someone got injured, we're seeing Landon Donovan come back to this, this national team. I think it's that relationship's gone for good. I absolutely agree. Unfortunately, guys, I would have to I would have to step off. Uh, but uh, it was great being on uh, on the show today. All right, All right. All right. All right. take Thank care. You. Thank you. All right, now I think we have I think we have our guest next. Nine for nine. Is that you, Clint? Clint Alexander? Uh, no. Uh, no. Okay, I think I know who it is. I think that's Matt Hoffman. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> I, I was lo- I looked up on my phone. I'm like, it's close enough to be, it's close enough to be him. But when I looked up my phone number for you, it's the wrong one. <laughs> well, hey, uh, are, are we still talking Portugal, or is that, that guy gone? No, no. You, we're until the bottom of the hour. We're talking all of world, all of World Cup at at the bottom oh. of the hour. And actually, this guy at the bottom of the hour, we're having Clint Alexander from. San Diego Flash talking about um, soccer in San Diego. Cool. Um, so, um, so the Portugal guy's gone now, right? Yeah, yeah. It's Eric Krakauer of um, Soccer League. Oh, rats! I, I wanted to ask him some questions. Um, he probably he probably heard me coming. He saw me in the queue and got out. Smart man. Yeah. <laughs> and you're, you're well, also um, on with Derek Rich. You're also on with Derek. Rich. I love you, Derek. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. I appreciate Man, we got, you guys are packing the house. I'm so proud of what you guys are doing with the Indy 11, and I know that win is just around the corner. Congratulations, though. And and from the bottom of my heart, thank you for not feeling like you have to go through MLS. You know that that because there are lower leagues in this in this in this country, and they deserve you know they deserve recognition. You know the Timbers, the Whitecaps, Seattle, they all came through the lower divisions, and. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I, I think it's great what you guys are doing, and I, I'm, I'm rooting for you guys. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks so much. I think uh, all you guys are done. I think we'll, we'll, we'll see how that all works out for uh, all the teams in NASL. If, you know, as, as things move forward, if whether or not uh, those teams, because of the poor relationship between MLS and NASL, if there's mm-hmm. some sort of uh, repercussion for being a member of the NASL down the down the line as far as being uh, promoted, if you will, to MLS. But I think no matter what you do, you still can't uh, you can't deny 11,000 people showing up at every game. So I'm hoping that makes some sort of difference. Unfortunately, Absolutely. What, unfortunately Absolutely. what we're seeing right now is that uh, NASL had an interest in having a team in St. Louis and uh, MLS and USL flew in and said uh, – you know, hey, you really want to make it to the MLS someday, then right now what you really need to do is just be a feeder club 
for Chicago Fire. And hopefully that's not what happens all across this country. Otherwise, what we're going to see is uh, just basically the third division is going to be a farm league, uh, kind of like in the baseball format uh, for MLS, which will leave kind or like of NASL. Or like uh, football. Yeah. I mean, it'll leave NASL teams kind of as, as the odd man out as MLS and USL sort of pursue their uh, monopoly uh, across the country uh, of every major city and basically uh, make mm-hmm. it impossible for other NASL right. teams to to, uh, to start the, without the threat that, um, that future promotion to MLS would be uh, less likely if you're an NASL team. But we'll see how that all works out. It's, it's quite the, uh, the quandary, I know, for a lot of cities. Well, can I ask you some World Cup questions? Of course. Sure. Uh, Derek, Derek Matt, is, Matt is the host of my second show now. He's, he's, he's the host of the Substitutes Bench, or whatever he calls it, this week. And you got Stephen, you have so many shows. <laughs> it, it, I, it's, it's a, he's a, an expanding empire. <laughs> as, long, as, long as, it's not my, as long as it's not my waistline, I have no problem with anything else expanding. <laughs> so, Group G, yeah, we're calling that the Group of Death. Um, what's Group F? Group F. Uh, let's see here. That's group of Fun? Yeah, the Group <laughs> of Fun. I mean, it's Argentina. They're, they're getting out. Bosnia. Iran, Nigeria. Yeah. It, I, mean, it, I think, I mean, Argentina is taking all nine points there, right? They should. I mean, really, it's uh, when you look at the average rank of that group, I think it's like 21, which is near the bottom. The only groups that are worse are Group A and Group H as far as overall so, quality. So who's the other team getting out? I mean, yeah, Bosnia, this is their first time there. I think... If I'm not mistaken, Iran's only win is against the United States in World Cup yeah. play. Um, and so, I mean, I think that just falls to Nigeria. Yeah, I mean, you, don't you have to think this is Nigeria's best chance uh, for a very long time of making it, uh, having a, a decent performance in the World Cup? I think so. I mean, and you see the same thing really for, for Cameroon, even though they're mm-hmm. supposedly the worst team in Group A. This is really their their opportunity to to, to make a dent. Um, it seems like uh, a lot of the African teams traditionally have a, you know, they're, they they play well leading up to the World Cup, but some of them have had some serious difficulties once they get there. But you know, those two teams have an opportunity here, especially Nigeria, and we'll see how Nigeria lines up against us uh, during the friendly and uh, get a feel. I think for us uh, so um, what about the Ivory Coast? They're in Group C with Colombia, who's had their injury problems. Greece, who, you know, less, you know as a Chelsea fan, um, even I can say Greece has set the game back. And Japan. <laughs> yeah, that is an interesting group, though, because, you know, the Ivory Coast, for whatever reason, seem to get to the World Cup, and they're, again, just have a rough time of it for whatever reason. Um, definitely a lot of experience and talent on that team and mm-hmm. I think you know Japan's sort of a wild card they have a few players who play at a high level and then mm-hmm. some, some of the team you know they're they're playing domestically so uh, they're kind of like us in a lot of ways you know except uh, they actually have players playing at you know uh, Man United for instance so 
Yeah, I think, you know, your best bet there is Columbia and the Ivory Coast. I, I think this is their best chance in a while to get through. Japan has actually made it out of the group stage in the last two World Cups. Yeah, they have they have that tendency. They play smart. I mean, not um, that that really has anything to do with this because that was four years ago. But yeah. when, I, when I saw it today, I, I was kind of surprised. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, they do have a good record. They do tend to play really smart soccer once they get to the World Cup. They are very methodic, and they're a lot quicker than people give them credit for. Their passing is pretty first class. Uh, I'm surprised they're ranked lower than Greece, frankly. But, you know, um, we'll see how they do. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Japan makes it out of this group instead of the Ivory Coast, frankly. It wouldn't shock me at all. The only guy, I just guys I just don't think have it, don't have the team to get out of that group is Greece. And um, maybe that's just me. And I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of crap from fans who are fans of Greece, but they seem to be the, the odd man out in that group. Oh, like like the dad from the big fat, my big fat Greek wedding who like painted his like <laughs> garage, like the Greek flag. Yeah. Well, you know, there, there's some very big Greek communities here in the United States. Uh, not so much Japan, but I remember when Brett and I, um, we made the prediction, and I can't remember what team. It was Serbia. Uh, we predicted they would, in the last World Cup, would finish last in their group. And uh, when we put the show out, man, we got so many hate emails and hate messages. It was like, threatening our lives. We thought, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. Didn't, didn't know it would bring that reaction. I don't think the, the Greek uh, fans are quite that radical, but, uh, yeah, Got to watch. Well, you know, Derek, what's going to happen now? Because you, we, because we, I think we said here that we think that uh, Nigeria is advancing Group F. So, are you going to get a bunch of emails from Nigerian princes that want to share their wealth with you? <laughs> yeah, I, if only I cut them a check first and give them my private account number. Yeah, exactly. They're like, we, you love us. We love you. Let us share us our wealth with you. <laughs> Those never work. Seem to turn out for me when I get involved in them, though. So. <laughs> So what about Group H? Okay, so Belgium, Algeria, Russia, South Korea. Worst group in the World Cup, according to some. Um, you know, Belgium has one of those teams where they've got a lot of talent, and this really should be their kind of next golden generation, so we'll see how they do. And if they don't get out of this group, it'll be a major, major failure. But, yeah. Um, you know, Algeria. Although South Korea has had success too. I mean, I believe yeah, they got out of the group stage last year in the last World Cup as well. Yeah, they're like Japan in the sense that you know they always seem to find their way out of group play, no matter where they're ranked. So again, it's like they should get together and host a World Cup by themselves. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, 2002 all over again. Yeah, both of those teams, South Korea, Japan. I, I think you got to throw out the rankings because. They they always come to the World Cup, and they're steady. They don't play nervously. They have a system. They pass well. They move well. They're quick. I think the odd men out in that group are the guys that are really going to be fighting uh, to to legitimize themselves are Algeria and Russia, um, right. two, two teams that haven't traditionally always done very well in the World Cup or even made it to the World Cup. Um, South Korea is used to being there. I think they'll do fine. Yeah. Do you think Brazil, Croatia, if it's anything less than a 3-0 victory from Brazil, that'll be crisis mode? 
<laughs> I don't know. I mean, Brazil really should beat all three teams in that group, shouldn't they? I mean, by how much? I, I don't know. But uh, uh, And they'll have the home crowd there. But, you know, Mexico has always been a thorn in the Brazilian side. And they always come out and play Brazil. Generally, they play them pretty well. I think that's where Brazil's going to have their biggest battle. Believe it or not, uh, the Mexican team, as poorly as they played leading up to the World Cup, for whatever reason, always seem to give the Brazilians a, a good go at it. Um, so I, I'd look for, for Mexico to uh, – they got lucky in this draw, didn't they? I mean, really, imagine that's the U.S. in that group instead of Mexico. That would have been a little bit more uh, doable for us. So uh, they got a good draw. They better make, make use of it. Be well, I want to interrupt you. Yeah, I'm going inter- to interrupt you, Matt Hoffman, because Clint Alexander of the San Diego Flash is online right now. Clint, welcome to the show. Hey guys, how's it going? Good. Hey, you're you're on with Derek. You're you're on with Derek Ritchie from Indianapolis and Stephen Brandt. Hey Derek, how's it going so, out there it, in Indy? Hey, how are you going? Well, I'll tell you what, it's about uh, 80 degrees in sunny southern, sunny southern California, and we couldn't <laughs> love it anymore. Absolutely. So, so you, for people who haven't listened, haven't listened, because Clint was on about a year ago, he is the CEO of the San Diego Flash, and I wanted to, I wanted to have him on again because he, we, we we were to, we were talking about San Diego as a soccer market, and, and Clint has a lot of great ideas about soccer and growing it as a business. I wanted to give him the the back half of the show to to infl- to give to give us an update on the San Diego Flash and what they were doing. Wow, has it been a year? I didn't know it was that long, man. It's been about it's been about that because it's been about that. It was it was about summertime when I called you the last time, and you called me about the same time this year. So, all right. Well, we, you know, there there's there's definitely been some new things going on here here with what we've got what we're doing in San Diego. Um, you know, I'll start with our team. Our team is doing extremely well. Um, we're I think eleven twelve games into our season, and we're sitting in second place. We uh, have one loss on the season and two draws. So things are looking pretty good for us going into the playoffs for the National Premier Soccer League. Um, but off the field, um, that's kind of really more the focus is that, uh, you know, so when I started the club five years ago, a lot of people don't know, I have a background of like over 25 years in finance and investment banking. And when I started the club five years ago, the idea was to be sort of like the Green Bay Packers, where the fans have an opportunity to own, have ownership in the club. And so since over the last like five years, we've had like probably 60 plus investors that have come in and supported what we're doing. And it's also dawned upon us that here in the San Diego market, um, you know, somebody's going to build a soccer stadium at some point. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the stadiums that are available, you know you have Qualcomm, which is seventy thousand. You have uh, University of San Diego, which is like six thousand, and there's nothing in between. 
Yeah. Now, one of the kind of embarrassing things, you know, for the city of San Diego is that, you know, we hosted the U.S. men's national team here a couple months ago, um, 20, about 22,000, 23,000 fans sitting in a 70,000-seat facility doesn't look very good. And then we had the women's team here um, a couple months ago, and there was about 12 or 13,000 fans sitting in a sitting in a uh, you know a very large facility. So you know, along with myself and my my partners, we've we've made a decision that you know with the mob the business model that we have, we have an opportunity to let fans participate in erecting or you know renovating uh, a soccer stadium here in San Diego as well. Mm. Hmm. How big of a stadium are you you looking to uh, to build, Clint? Well, the idea is that you know, I mean, that's kind of one of the things that I try to get people to kind of wrap their minds around is that we're not going out like the Chargers and trying to build an eight hundred million dollar, you know, super, uh, you know, Charger stadium. Um, You know, the idea is the, the idea is to do it realistically. Um, we've got our eyes set on doing something in the neighborhood of about 8,000 seats and then having, a, having over the next like couple of years after it's built, expanded up to Major League Soccer requirements, which would be about 27,000 according to the, uh, you know, we've already engaged an architect that's doing designs for us. And um, so, yeah, things are, things are moving, moving forward with what we're doing. Now, if you're missing, Derek Ritchie is the president of the the Indy 11 um, supporters group, the Brickyard Battalion. So he he's been behind some of he's he's seen Indi- Indianapolis rise from doing their like 11. They do their 11,000 in the in a in a similar league. Um, you also when we we talked, you were talking about making money with soccer, and obviously all of us who are talking about the sport, loving the sport our interest in that. I mean, what, where, where, where are you going with this? Well, kind of the interesting thing is that, um, you know, again, going back to the parallel of the Green Bay Packers, you know, just uh, two years ago, well, you know, three now, 2011, the Green Bay Packers did an offering where they raised $143 million to renovate, to renovate Lambeau Field. And, um, you know, the unfortunate part is that they sell those shares at $250 a share. So it's not like, you know, if I'm a shareholder, I'm buying that stock at $250, hoping I'll double my money when it goes to 500 That's not the game plan. Hmm. The, two, the two things that are separate is that soccer is still in its infancy in the United States. So the industry itself has room to grow. And then when you talk about, you know, where we are in San Diego as a, as a organization, we still have room to grow. So to kind of take a a parallel from the stockbroker business, you know, when you have a growing company in a growing industry and you're in on, I hate, you know, hate to use this, but you're in on the ground floor, you have a pretty significant opportunity to make money as an investor. Uh, that's an interesting thought because we see a lot. We see a lot of teams, and we had that problem. In I don't know if you read about it, the Pensacola team just folded up, and the, the, the owner just went basically went away and straight. Yeah, well, everything, everything I read about you guys with the Flash, with your 
with your with your soccer social network and everything is always very positive. And what what made you think of starting the soccer team coming from your investment breaker broker thing is because it's in its infancy that there can be money. I mean, what what made soccer? What made the San Diego Flash? What well, then the history today? of the team. Yeah, the history of the team is that um, I actually was brought in as an investor. Um, see, the Flash was here before in 1998 to 2000, and it played in the old uh, A League. If you remember that from the USL. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it was started by another a friend of mine who actually he and I met in the stockbroker business in Los Angeles back in like the early 90s. He's the one that grew up playing soccer. He's the one who started the San Diego Flash originally. Along with him and another partner, uh, they invited me as an, in as an investor back in like 1998. Unfortunately, uh, the business side was not run properly and the team only lasted for about four years. Mm-hmm. So I moved to San Diego about five years ago, 2008, um, and I look around and I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, one is like, hey, you know, we actually used to play the Seattle Sounders in the A-League. So one of the thoughts that I have in the back of my mind is like, wow, what if we had stayed in business? Maybe San Diego would already be in Major League Soccer. But the second part of it is that, hey, you know, we've got a second bite at the apple. There's no doubt that San Diego is a major league soccer city. It's just that, you know, from my business sense, you know, to go out and spend $100 million to join major league soccer and then go get your stadium and then go get your players and go get your staff, that that type of business model just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So when I started the club, when I, we started the team, started the team at a level, which is the NPSL, that is, that is an affordable level. And uh, basically what we're looking to do is build from the ground up, not only the team, the fan base, the investors, and, you know, going forward, you know, there's no rules out there that say that we as a company, just because we have an NPSL team, that we can't build a soccer stadium. Right. So that's what our that's what our intention is. What What about um, you know uh, down the line uh, vision as far as uh, is this something where you see sort of a either a step by step process where you join the USL and then NASL and then or do you just jump straight to MLS or is that even something that you guys are uh, have uh, you know looking forward looking out ahead of you? In your mind, well, well, it, it, you know, uh, you know, I've been do, I've been in this, you know, soccer business twenty four seven for five years, and I feel like I've kind of learned the ropes as far as the different leagues are concerned. And you know, the only issue has to do with paying money to these individual leagues if you want to join. Number one, and number two, you know, like for example, there's a USL Pro Club just uh, you know forty miles away from us up in Orange County. Okay, this guy, uh, the Orange County Blues, you know, I mean, unfortunately for them, you know, you spend $850,000 to join that league. Then you've got a travel budget that's close to a million dollars every year. And then you're, 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 you know, you can't sell enough $10 tickets and $20 T-shirts to make up those kind of costs. I'm sorry, it just doesn't make sense. So, 
the idea is that, you know, if the opportunities present themselves for our team to move up, we will certainly look at them because that's what the fans want. Fans are – We one thing that I had a conversation with one of our largest investors just the other evening was, you know, fans are very smart now when it comes to watching soccer. It's not like the old days where it's just, you know, you throw the ball out there. Fans are very savvy about what they want to watch. And we know that, you know, unfortunate, you know, well, we play in a league that unfortunately is not given a whole lot of respect. But guess what? Our guys play their hearts out, and we play as if we are in Major League Soccer. Mm-hmm. And we try to present our organization, you know, on social media through our YouTube channel as if, you know, we're doing the best we can with what we've got, in other words. Because at the yeah. end of the day, I've already been through the scenario of watching a club go go uh, under because the financing wasn't there properly. So I'm not about to put ourselves in a financial risk just to join some higher league just to spend extra money. And then so there's that other – I was going to say there's another scenario that just recently happened, Clint, to uh, – a lower division team, a NASL team, the Atlanta Silverbacks, who've been around for a while, and you know we're doing okay. They're getting by. Uh, and then of course you have MLS kind of swoop in, and uh, they're going to start a team there. One has to wonder then what happens to the Silverbacks? Do they have enough fans to sustain themselves? And you know, uh, do you ever worry about that kind of scenario happening in, in San Diego, or is it just something that's out of your control? So there's no point in worrying about it. Well, to be quite frank with you, that's exactly why we need to put a stadium plan in play. Because, um, you know, I mean, I think we're sort of protected in the fact that, you know, people who can afford a $100 million investment, I think are smart enough to recognize that that's not not an easy break-even to uh, manage. And that's probably why you don't have Major League Soccer in San Diego currently. But I think uh, once people see that our, our business plan gives them not only an opportunity to support soccer, to build something for the community, but also to possibly make money for themselves, I think that's what people will be interested in seeing. Yeah. And what do you, I mean, how, how do you feel at least as far as the soccer pyramid goes that USL's partnership with MLS seems to be converting that third division, for the most part, into sort of a classical farm system for MLS. Um, And, you know, I mean, from an NASL perspective, I'll give you our perspective, I think, at least my own personal perspective, which is, you know, we were interested at at one point in in maybe bringing a team to St. Louis, um, an NASL team to St. Louis, but unfortunately, you know, MLS and USL kind of swooped in there and said, uh, hey, you know, uh, St. Louis investors, if uh, you really want a chance down the line at making uh, making it up to MLS, you, sh- you need to start out as a USL farm team first. I mean, it's, it's safer than taking the risk of owning your own team and running your own team and watching your own dollars because you have the safety net of being an MLS feed team. I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that and how that affects the soccer pyramid in general to have one of the divisions be solely pretty much a, a feeder um, league for MLS teams. Well, you know, I think I think the whole process is very convoluted, to be honest with you. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, again, it just comes down to money. 
I mean, if people in St. Louis want USL or they want NASL, they just got to pay a franchise fee. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And, yeah. you know, whether, you know, and if Major League Soccer is coming in and, and implic- you know, indicating, if you will, that, you know, they should go with one league versus another, I think, you know, I mean, quite frankly, it seems like it's tampering. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. uh, you know, like I said, there, there's two separate issues here. But, you know, there's teams and there's leagues, and then there's doing something that's separate from the team and the league, which is operating a business. And right. what we do with our company is we operate a business. The team is secondary. The team is always going to be the thing that got me in this business, and the team is always going to be the sexy part about what we do. But going forward, we run a business. And on the business side, we're looking to uh, do, do, do things that support the sport of soccer in San Diego and put our fans and our investors in a good position to grow soccer in the, in the city of San Diego. Yeah. And I think that's all you really can do. I mean, you, uh, you have to, and, and the bottom line is it's just so important. Of course, our owner uh, realizes that as well in Indianapolis. And uh, uh, you do what you can do to, to, to present the best product on the field, and you do what you can do to put the best, uh, uh, bring the, uh, create the best atmosphere and culture at the games themselves. So some things oh, are a little bit out of our control. Yeah, 100%. And I know uh, Peter Wilt is involved with you guys, right? He sure is. He's the president. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, you know, I've seen his name around on Twitter and Facebook, you know, for years, and I know he's a great ambassador for the sport. Um, as you guys probably know, um, you know, my business partners are, are Warren Barton and Eric, uh, Eric Winalda from Fox Soccer Channel. Right. So, you know, Warren has been a tremendous asset in that, you know, not only, you know, with his background coming from Newcastle United, the APL, but um, he, you know, him being our coach gives us a tremendous amount of credibility with all the players. Everyone wants to play for the San Diego Flash here in San Diego. Yeah. And, um you know, so it's it's been a magical ride for us for the last five years, and you know, building the team, building the fan base. But like I say, the future is what was what's bright for us here in San Diego. And I would certainly invite anybody who you know we. I mean, there's investors on our page that you know, I'd say about 30% of the people that are invested with us don't even live in San Diego. We've actually got like three guys that are up in Toronto, Canada, that recognize yeah. that the potential for the future growth of soccer in San Diego is pretty, pretty bright. So, you know, I would say that anyone who's interested in at least taking a look at what we've got to offer should visit our website, which is San Diego flash And there's a tab there. You can request an email and it's pretty simple. I mean, we, we try to keep things pretty, pretty uh, low key around here. And, um, you know, there's no high pressure to what we do because people either recognize what we've got going on or they don't. Yeah. Well, that being said, I think one of the keys for our success, we had about 400 Peter Wilt showed up in Indiana. And the one thing that uh, made it become what it is now, which is 3,000 people are now members of the Brickyard Battalion, which is pretty extraordinary when you think about what we started with, which was nothing. But the key to that really was when Peter got here, um, he's just one of those guys that went out, to all the soccer bars with us, uh, 
when we were going to have an event, we did it in uh, partnership with the team and with Peter and with Ursul. And everywhere we go, I mean, Peter was out there shaking hands, talking to people about the team, future was, and building that grassroots culture. And I think that's so key. I mean, we are seeing some other teams pop up now, and they don't have any supporters um, at all. They're just starting a team, and they they haven't done the grassroots work first. And I think um, that becomes a challenge for those teams, like uh, maybe the Calvary would be a good example. Um, I think in a lot of ways you've got to do your you've got to do the dirty work first. You've got to get in there and and hand out those flyers and and do the social media and really uh, you know be out there reaching out to people and building this culture because in the long term that's what's really going to make I think a soccer in any city successful. So you've got to have those key people like Peter Wilt who can go out there and do that for you. Well, Derek, I couldn't agree with you more completely. I mean, at the end of the day, like I said earlier, soccer fans have become way more savvy in the last five to ten years than they've ever been in the United States. And they know a good product on the field when they see one. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's all about education. I mean, we've got, you know, a a pretty substantial group of American outlaws out here in San Diego, Um, you know, there's a group here in San Diego that goes and watches the LA galaxy and drives, you know, I don't know, 50, 75 miles away to go do that. But, you know, and it's our task to make sure that they're aware that, you know, we're here locally putting a good product on the field as well. So yeah, you got to, you know, like, like, like what you said with what Peter does, you got to go out and what I like to call touch Indians. And you right. got to let people be aware of what you're doing, and hopefully, hopefully, you know they'll they'll give you a shot, and they'll come around and watch your games. Um, you know, the only thing that you can do on your end as as an organization is do what you do on a consistent basis every day and provide that quality. And if you provide that quality over uh, you know an extended period of time, we've been here for four or five years. Um, you know, we're always, you know, every season we have, you know, these unbelievable uh, unbeaten streaks. Um, and, you know, we've got the best players in San Diego playing for us right now. So, you know, as long as you keep putting quality on the field, I think I think eventually the fan base will find you. And that's interesting, the dynamics of that fan base with all the millennials out there. Um some who maybe not even are interested in other sports, but are interested in soccer. And um, I think that uh, we can continue to tap into that audience, but also continue to reach out to uh, the very diverse communities in our cities. And we've we've tried to do our best uh, with that here, and I'm sure you guys are as well. But there is an audience out there. You just have to you have to go out there, and you have to go shake hands, and you have to go talk to them and get them involved. You're always going to have people oh, yeah. that say, yeah, you're always going to have those folks that say, well, I don't watch the U.S. domestic soccer. You know, I only watch the Premier League or whatever. But you'll find if you, like you said, stick around for four years and build that culture that they'll even get on board eventually. It just takes time. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that's starting to happen with us is the, the local media is actually starting to, like, give us uh, some attention. Um you know, before the only the only problem is that you have you know here in San Diego you've got 
you know, huge Chargers and huge Padres on the radio and on TV. Mm-hmm. And everybody and their brother who is a sports blogger, that's what they blog about. But mm-hmm. I've been able to find a few people that are willing to step outside the box and recognize that, hey, if I do start covering soccer, what happens to my audience? Maybe mm-hmm. it'll grow. You know, um, I've, I had some conversations with some editors at the Union Tribune, and uh, the conversation was basically, hey, listen, you know, for an institution like the Union Tribune, like all magazines across the country that are folding right now, why wouldn't you want to go and pursue a new audience? Yeah. And so what we've been able to do is we've been able to bridge the gap where the Union Tribune is now starting to cover us a little bit. They've had a couple of articles written about us. And there's another uh, local uh, news agency called SoccerLee.com. They just recently did a partnership with NBC because, you know, NBC is now heavily starting to cover uh, soccer. Um, you know, the, the handwriting is on the wall. People are not going to be able to keep ignoring soccer in the United States. And yeah. that's why we feel with what we've got going on with the San Diego Flash, our Internet projects, our stadium projects, that we're in the right place at the right time in history. And this year we're going to be able to announce that we're the first publicly traded soccer club in the United States. And for people that raise their hand and want to be a part of that, Trust me, you're going to be a hero to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, especially, especially in a place like San Diego, and having having names like Warren Barton and Eric Winalda a part of the team for for people that are just getting into the sport. You, you see Eric and you see Eric and you see Eric and Warren all the time. I mean. I think I've seen I think I've seen more and more in the last month and a half than other soccer pod, podcasts. And that's, <laughs> I, that's, I know I, I I kid Warren a lot. I I always tell him he's the hardest working man in soccer because he lives down here in San Diego. He drives to Los Angeles for Fox Soccer Channel. His kids are high school and middle school age, and he coaches his kids. In addition to being the coach of our team too. So, you know, he is he's one of the hardest working guys I've ever seen in the in the soccer business. And I'm I'm we are very fortunate to have him involved in um in our organization and I'm very lucky myself to have him as a friend. He seems to lo- really love the sport when you listen to him on air. He seems to be one of those former players that truly lo- loves being around it. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, that's kind of one of the cool things about our partnership, too, is that everyone who is involved with our group, you know, we all get to be friends and hang out, um, you know, particularly, you know, either on Facebook or on Twitter or locally. And, you know, that's, that's sort of the culture that we're developing with our part ownership group. And, you know, Warren is just one of these kind of guys that, you know, we'll go sit down and have a beer and everybody has, has a great time with him. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Clint, I want to thank you. We're get, we're getting up to the end of the show, so I I don't want I want to give you at least your due before we have to go off. You where where can we find you on Twitter and the show, and the Twitter and Facebook, and where can we find your um team when we want when we want to look up, look you guys up? Well, that's, I've got a Twitter account. It's uh, at Flash Soccer CEO. 
the Twitter account for the, the, the team is at SD Flash Soccer. Twitter account for Warren is uh, at Warren Barton 2. We can be found on Facebook, uh, San Diego Flash Pro Soccer. Just got to search there. And our website address is San Diego Flash Soccer.com, San Diego Flash Soccer.com. And like I said, for anyone that's interested in, you know, taking a peek at what we've got going on for the future in San Diego, you go to our website. There's an investor tab there. You click on the link and read about our story. If you want information, we'll email it to you. It's really that simple. All right. All right. Thanks, Clinton. Good to talk. Good to talk to you this month. Hey, thank you guys again. I really appreciate what you guys do, and we'll look forward to talking to you again. All right. Thanks. Sounds good. Clint Alexander, and we're coming up to the last five minutes of the show, so I want to get, I also do want to give Derek his due. Coming up next week, and I'm sure you know of him, Derek, because you, you, you interact with a lot of people in the sport. Christian Dyer is um, showing up next week. He has a... He has a book called 30 Days Across America. It's a, it's a his, sort of a soccer historical fiction about two guys traveling across America watching the 94 Olympics, not the Olympics, 94 World Cup, and becoming better, becoming better soccer fans. And the difference between what soccer is now to what it was then. And, I, I mean, I can – I mean, it's – it's even changed in the last 10 years, as we were finding out right there. So he's going to be on next week. Keith, Keith, hopefully he will be on next week. No, no, knowing him, he's probably chomping at the bit to listen to the show afterwards. <laughs> Are you guys doing another show this during the uh, during the World Cup? Yeah, actually, we just put out um, our first show in a while, um, and. Uh, just kind of leading up to the World Cup and throughout the World Cup, Brett and I will continue to put out probably a show every week, um, just uh, summarizing what's happened and what's going to happen next. So for the meanwhile, because as you know, we're taking a break uh, for the World Cup uh, from in our work with Indy 11 as well. So that gives us more time to uh, to to watch the World Cup and comment on it. So um, it's it's hard to believe we were doing the same thing four years ago, and it's been that long since uh, we started the show because it just seems like yesterday. It, it, mu- it must be like, now you've been doing the show for four years, but you've been writing or something on it for what, at least 10? Yeah, I've been writing on it for about 10 years. I don't write uh, as much anymore, occasional article for the Straight Red Card and um, and for uh, BigSoccer.com as well. But these days uh, we ran out of time, so... If we can get our show on once a month, and in this case during the World Cup once a week, uh, we are uh, we're pretty happy about that. All right, and well, before we wrap up, before we wrap up this wonderful episode of the yellow card, yellow card, and there's no truth to the rumor I stole the yellow carded podcast off of your off of your show. So whoever wants to <laughs> to rip that, I, I, and I know Simon's probably listening, saying I did that. No. It has nothing to do with your show, so no, no, hey. no one's Simon. He <laughs> that's fine with me. We 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 had no problem with it whatsoever, even if you did rip it off. But I think it's it's all good because this is the because this is before the World Cup. Um, who do you see in the final for the um, World Cup this year? 
gosh, I can't even remember who I, I, I filled out a whole bracket. Um, and I know I had Brazil in, in the final, I think against Spain. Um, and I have Brazil winning the whole thing. Um, uh, but, uh, that's a pretty, that's a pretty safe pick. Um, maybe I should have been a little more risky. <laughs> pick like Poland or like United States, like I've done every four World Cups. Well, Cross, Poland's got to qualify for the World Cup first, don't they? <laughs> I, I think so. Or what, maybe Ebro, maybe Ebro will run. Maybe Ibrahimovic will run out onto the round pitch. Or, well, anyway, that's that's the ninety second buzz in the back of my ear. I want to thank Derek Ritchie. Eric Krakauer, Matt Hoffman, and Clint Alexander for showing up today. I, I needed I needed four people to fill Clint to fill Keith Kokinda's shoes, which is he's going to laugh when he hears this. Anyway, Derek, thank <laughs> you for being on. Thanks for having me, Stephen. All right, and we will see you guys. Well, we'll know if I if I'm actually seeing you guys next week. We'll have a whole bunch of issues. Anyway, this has been Stephen Brand on the L Card Podcast. And we'll talk to you guys next week.